Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You open your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. Uh, we are finally at the penultimate sermon in our series on Romans, which means next week will be the final one, and this is kind of second to last. I told you last time that that, that big list of names was like the, the credits at the end of a movie, and that the Apostle Paul had a post credit scene for us, and this is it, what we're about to read in verses 17 through 20. And there's some drama here. There's some conflict. There's good reason for us to have worked through uh, what we did last time so that we could reach this passage. So hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Father, we thank you for the coming victory of King Jesus. And we ask that as we wait in anticipation, you would help us to guard against all those who sow discord and seek to undermine our unity in Christ. In Christ's name we ask, amen. So here... Paul tells us to watch out. That's a message that's been implicit throughout the whole sermon series, to to keep an eye on various people, various uh, focuses in the ministry and the mission of the church. But here he just comes out and says it. I want you to watch out. I appeal to you to watch out. We've been focusing in this last section of Romans on the ones to watch, where we should be looking out, where we should keep our eyes open. And now, Paul is giving us what you might think of as, as a slightly different note. Because everything that's gone before has been really positive. All of Paul's parting words have been encouraging, have shown us really encouraging things. But now, he's telling us something a little sobering. He's already told us we should keep an eye out for those who've never heard the gospel, for those who need our help, for those who need our prayer, that we should be encouraging to those who serve with us, but now he says to watch out. If you think about all of these different focuses, you can see they have something in common. If you look at the front of your order of worship where they're all illustrated for you, you can see there's a common thread, and it has to do with unity. It has to do with the life of the community. The focus of the church and its mission is on the various aspects of this communal life. In one way or another, everything that we've looked at from week to week has had to do with loving one another and extending the the borders of that love, growing a community of love and of unity. And now Paul is warning us to watch out for those who cause division, to watch out for those who strive against us. 
So we should be active in promoting love and unity, but we should also be on guard, he says, against those who endanger that love and that unity. Because this thing that's being built in the body of Christ is something wonderful, something beautiful, but also something always under pressure, always under attack, under constant threat. Tragically, as Paul says here, threat from within, from within the church. In the immediate context of Paul's words, you need to be thinking about the conflict between uh, like the Pauline gospel and what theologians called Judaizers, people who are saying, okay, you Gentile Christians, if you want to come into the church, that's fine, but we're going to need to get you up to speed on all the Jewish ritual observance, need to get you circumcised, need to get you observing all the feasts and festivals. In other words, you need to convert to Judaism in order to put your faith in Christ. And that doctrine was driving a wedge. It was destroying the unity of the body of Christ that we've seen Paul has been so zealous in protecting. These people caused division between the various ethnic groups that Christ had brought into union. And because of that, Paul says, be on your guard against them. They're creating obstacles to Gentiles coming to faith. But there's a larger sense in which this kind of a challenge is always present with us. That that the unity that we have in the Bible, in the church, in the sort of community that that Christ's word is creating, it's always under threat. But those who strive against us within the church, as Paul suggests here, are often doing so for what seem to be pious reasons. Like the Judaizers, they believe they possess the moral high ground, that they know better than the scriptures. They know better than the elders. They know better than anyone who strives for unity. And yet, Paul says here, the motives are not as pure as they let on. That what motivates that desire to disrupt the unity is not a pious goal, but something very very carnal. And Paul actually says we should treat such people differently than we would like wayward brothers and sisters. His approach to people who, who disrupt the unity of the church in this way, it's very different from people who uh, disagree or don't understand or, or have differences of opinion. Right? That's not what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about something more. So Paul warns us. He says, watch out for those who strive against us. Specifically for those who cause divisions, he says, and create obstacles. So those are the two uh, uh, red flags, you might say. People who are causing divisions, creating obstacles. It's striking to me, as I reflect on the teaching of certainly this part of the book of Romans, how much Paul values unity in Christ, how much he wants to see peace among the brothers and sisters of the body of Christ. And so it's not surprising that his final warning, like the last thing on his mind to kind of uh, to say to the Romans, the, the last word of advice would be focused specifically on those who seek to undermine this thing that Paul cares so much about. He wants us to be mindful of those who would seek to undermine that unity. He wants to have us be on our guard against those who create factions and encourage 
disputes, arguments. We throw up barriers, reasons why we can't be at one and at peace with one another. It says we should watch out for such people, first and foremost, in the church itself. Which, as I said, is kind of tragic. As much love and unity as there is in the body of Christ, Paul says there's also danger. There are also threats in the body of Christ as well. So we need to be on our guard, even within the church, even from those who who seem pious when they seek to create division in the church, where they put up obstacles to faith, not just on the outside, but even, you know, if, if they're pastors, for example, elders, deacons, whatever, leaders in the church, influential people, you know them by their fruit, not, as we said last week, their office. Right, so Paul is putting us on our guard that anyone who does these things, you should watch out for, because this is not the way those who are in Christ behave. I think in our context, we have to widen that circle a little bit. It's not just that we have to watch out within the, the community of Christ, but we're influenced by so many different uh, spiritual influences, parachurch organizations, popular teachers, influencers, celebrities, uh, the people who shape so much of modern spirituality in the church. And even there, as we are influenced, we should be on our guard against those who create these divisions, who constantly stir up this strife. It's not that every disagreement or every argument necessarily falls into this category. Paul's not saying, look, it doesn't matter what people believe. You, you just have to be at one. And if anybody goes around saying it matters what you believe, you should stay away from those people because they're causing division in the church. Of course, Paul doesn't believe that. Of course, he wants us to strive for the truth, right? But at the same time, he wants us to strive for that truth, and he wants us to do it a certain way. He wants us to do it in love. He wants us to love one another. He wants us even to love our enemies. And that matters to Paul. That matters to Christ just as much as fidelity to the truth does. They go together. So we have to be able to tell a difference between uh, a faithfulness to the truth that sometimes requires us to confront those who are in sin and the kind of divisiveness that Paul is talking about here. How would we tell those two things apart? Well, he gives us a clue here when he says that, that you should watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So the obstacles and the divisions to be on guard against are the ones that are contrary to the gospel you've already been taught, to the apostolic teaching, right, to what Paul has already said. If someone's teaching you, as he would say, a different gospel, you should be on watch against that. Watch out for those who add to the gospel. Watch out for those who promote strife over their human convictions rather than divine ones. That's who to be on guard against. Now, if you've got to be on guard against people who are teaching you contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, that presupposes the importance of knowing Scripture and knowing the creeds and confessions that actually teach us the doctrine that we have been taught. 
It's not for nothing that we emphasize the importance of, of, of knowing Scripture, the importance of, of, of knowing the, the ancient creeds of the church, of knowing our confession of faith, because this is where we find the teaching, the doctrine that was handed down from the apostles. This is where we find it summarized for us. So if I want to know, like, who's being quarrelsome, who's being divisive, who is stirring up factions, divisions, that sort of thing, it's easy. I just look for those who are teaching contrary to that stuff, contrary to Scripture, contrary to the faith once delivered to the saints. But without that knowledge, how could I judge? If I don't know these things, then I can't tell one group apart from another. This is why you hear so many people say, well, you can make the Bible say anything. How can I tell who's right and who's wrong? You can make the Bible say anything which I always find astonishing because I find it very difficult to make the Bible say anything. I sometimes wish I could. You can make the Bible say anything when people don't know what the Bible says. But when they do, not so much. So it's important for us to know these things. We can't just judge based on what feels right to us, what feels moral to us. We need to know what Scripture says. We need to know what the apostles taught so that we can see what to watch out for, and what is reliable. It's really easy to see how, how other people are led astray. Has it ever shocked you how easily other people are led astray? How quickly they believe crazy things, unlike you. It's easy to perceive the faults of others. It's hard to perceive our own shortcomings. But sometimes we too are easily deceived. We just don't see it. And so we have to be, as Paul says, on our guard. Okay, so we're on our guard. We know the doctrine that has been handed down to us. We're, we're watching out, and we see someone causing strife and division, doing the things Paul warns about. What are we supposed to do? Paul says, avoid them. Avoid them, which isn't exactly what you would have expected. You might have thought fighting words are about to come. You, know, you see those people, punch them in the nose or something like that, but that's not what he says. He says, avoid them. And the Apostle John concurs. If you look at 2 John in verses 9 through 11, he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Or as Paul would say, avoid them. Avoid them. But shouldn't we fight them? Isn't avoiding them just kind of like running away? Shouldn't we confront them about their error? Okay, so I think there's a couple of benefits to what Paul is saying here. When he says avoid them, this actually accomplishes some things that are uh, a little surprising. So, first of all, if we avoid these divisive people, then we're not going to be influenced by the discord that they attempt to stir up. So, if they're creating conflict, if they're encouraging factionalism, and we avoid that, then we avoid being pulled into it. If we keep our distance, then we avoid being sucked into that factional way of thinking, whether the faction is like the the, the pro-faction or the anti-faction, if we avoid people who display these tendencies, we will not be influenced by that factionalism. 
If we avoid them, here's the second thing, we will not give oxygen to those errors. We will not give those errors oxygen to breathe. I always hated the fact that when I was growing up, my brother, I think he was probably possessed by demons or something. He was four years younger than me and and did everything that was evil in my eyes. And my parents both worked. And so I was left alone with him to kind of monitor his behavior. And I would report by phone to my parents whenever he did bad things. And I would expect them to come home and to, you know, execute justice on him because I had told them everything he had done. But my dad would, in this frustrating way, kind of split the difference. Whenever my brother and I got into an argument, he would say things. These words still echo in my ear. He would say, like, it takes two to tango. I'm like, what does that mean? Where is that in the Bible? Well, the point was, he expected me to be above it. He expected me to be more mature and to deal differently with the conflict than just to jump right in and fight the other side. I had been called to something higher than that. Oftentimes, we forget that we have a higher calling in our life. And when somebody comes into our community and they want to fight, we're like, hey, buddy, come on. I love fighting. Let's do it right here, right now. And we don't think about the consequences. In our communities online, we can be very combative. We can go out of our way to, to slit each other's throats, rhetorically speaking, because we're fighting for the truth. And we never stop to recollect that the Bible actually tells us how to deal with these situations. Avoid them. Avoid them. In those simple words, the Apostle Paul calls us to a higher level of conduct. Don't rush to division. Don't rush to factionalism. If there's a group of people who are getting it wrong and they're disturbing the church, Don't start organizing in the other direction to fight back. Start here. Avoid them. Don't give it air to breathe. Paul says there's a motivation behind this kind of behavior, and it's not what it appears to be. He says, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Make it seem very holy, very pious, but the reality is they're not driven by love for Christ. They're driven by their own appetites, which literally in the Greek is uh, their bellies. They're driven by their own needs, their own urges, whether it's for power, for popularity, for whatever it is. And they value those things so much higher than Christ that they're willing to divide the body of Christ in order to have the things that they want. And so Paul says, avoid them. Don't, Don't get sucked into that. You can see the the outward working of these kinds of motivations. You can judge whether people are seeking their own needs or the needs of the gospel by the way they pursue it. He says they do this by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. The naive here in Greek, it's it's akakos. It's innocent or guileless or simple. People who don't know better are easily deceived by fancy words, by flattery, by appearances. So these are people in the church who are using their charm, their intelligence, whatever it is, to to seduce those who just don't know any better into this way of thinking, into this faction. They never confront things head on. They don't take whatever their, their, their error is and carry it straight to the elders because then they would be risking correction. Instead, they go to those who don't know any better, and they build up 
support. Right? They radicalize those who cannot answer back effectively. They build a following, a, a faction through that rhetoric. We're in a season right now where we're seeing this happen all around us. You only need to, to log on to the internet and look at the Christian community to see that this is a season right now where if you have any position in the church and you're willing to tell people what they want to hear, if you're willing to flatter them, to tell them that they're the ones who are doing the right thing and that, that everyone else is wrong, if you're willing to validate them instead of challenging them, you will not suffer for it, you'll be rewarded for it. A lot of empires are being built right now, even as we speak, through smooth talk and through flattery. Paul says, avoid them. There are voices that are calling us not to love one another, not to sacrifice on behalf of one another, but calling us to war on behalf of self-interest. And as a result, they become superstars. Paul says, don't follow these people. Avoid them. Don't be deceived. Instead, be wise. And he calls us here to maturity. Right? Maturity in Christ means growing in wisdom. And interestingly, it also seems to be growing in innocence as well. Like Paul says, I'm not giving you this warning because you Roman Christians are so immature that you're just not going to see these threats coming. He's already told us in chapter 15 that the Roman church is full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But even they need to be on guard. Right? Their obedience is known to all. Paul says, I rejoice over you. But what that means is that even a robust and healthy church has to watch out for those who strive against us. That's how big the challenge is. And what we have to do to endure the challenge, what we have to do to navigate these days, Paul says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Remember in Matthew 10, Jesus says something very similar. He talks about persecution, says persecution will come, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Part of loving one another is keeping watch over one another and avoiding those who sow division. It's interesting, if you look at Paul's words, where his focus lies, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. We all understand the idea of growing in wisdom, right? You might start off naive, akakos, like those, those easily persuaded people, but through the work of the Spirit and experience, you can grow in wisdom. But we don't really think of innocence that way. We talk about innocence as something that can really only ever be lost. Right? Lost innocence, but never innocence gained. To grow in innocence is a weird way of thinking, and yet it seems to me that, that Paul has an expectation that the people of God will grow in wisdom, but also grow in innocence. In the Spirit, we grow in innocence as we become sanctified. Through obedience, we grow in wisdom and in innocence. Now, innocence here is not the same word. It was translated as naive earlier. It's not akakos. It's, uh, it's akeraos, which means to be simple, sincere, or blameless. And I don't want to put too much weight on word differences, but what's interesting here is innocence, the word that he uses, means literally unmixed or pure. 
that the kind of innocence that we might think you could like grow into is to be unmixed, uninfluenced, unalloyed. As we are sanctified, as the grip of sin over us diminishes, it is possible to grow in innocence in this respect. Right? Paul uses the same word here in Philippians 2.15, same word for innocence, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here's how it all fits together. You have knowledge of the doctrine that you have been taught, and you combine that with, as Paul says, obedience to it. So not just a knowledge of the tradition, but you're living it. You're being obedient to the call in your life. And as that obedience progresses, you grow in wisdom concerning the good. You have greater insight into what is good. But also there's a growth in innocence when it comes to our experience with evil. Our understanding of evil may grow, but our experience of it diminishes as the Spirit works in us. And one of the things that happens as a result is we become better at discerning what it is. So that when evil masquerades as good, we're able to sniff it out a little better. But still, but still, shouldn't we fight? Avoid them, sure. Don't be influenced by them, sure. But ultimately, shouldn't we fight? Shouldn't we go to war for Jesus, war for the truth, that sort of thing? It's the constant urge. And as I think about Paul's words, it's like I'm looking for the place to fit that in. Like, where is the part where we also uh, uh, beat down those who create division within the church? Well, stay united, bam, bam, that sort of thing. And it doesn't come. It doesn't come. There is a power that Paul is going to invoke, but it's not ours. There is a fight, but it's not ours. Although, it will be fought through us. As you mature in faith, absolutely, you should mature in your zeal for truth. But one of the things that happens as you do that is you become to see more and more how much the work of the church is the work of God and not us. As our eyes are opened in maturity and faith, we begin to see Christ at work in his people, Christ at work in his body. And when people sow division, when there's factionalism, we do get worried. But we don't worry about the future of Christ's church. We worry about those who stir up dissension in Christ's body. God is at work the victory that we long for is Christ's, not ours. And even when it comes to division in the church, even when it comes to uh, sowing discord, things that threaten the unity that is so precious to us, the teaching we have to remember is not fight back. The teaching we have to remember is love your enemies. That even those who are clearly wrong, who are clearly teaching what they shouldn't be teaching, who are leading the naive astray, we are seeking somehow to love. Even as we correct, even as we avoid, even as we refuse to join in that factionalism, we continue to strive to love, which means we cannot just lash out, especially here. So what do we do? 
what we do is we put our confidence in God. When we're challenged, when what we care about is threatened, when it seems as if what, what, what we cherish is being torn down before our very eyes, then it is most important to show that our trust is not in our own strength and our own understanding. Our trust is in Christ alone. Which is why Paul gives us this epic reminder. As he's given this warning, he suddenly switches gears a little bit. And it's not about you and what you need to do. It's about God and what God is doing. Christ will conquer the one who strives against us. He says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. These are remarkable words for a number of reasons. First of all, in the immediate context, it gives you a glimpse of who it is exactly who's striving against us. That is Satan himself who seeks to work division in the body of Christ, who seeks to undermine our confidence in the truth. When we sow division, in other words, we're doing Satan's work. Paul says God himself will crush them. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. When people sow division and discord, when they teach contrary to the gospel of love, my concern for them is not that they might get in trouble with the elders. My concern for them is not that they could find themselves like under church discipline. Those things are nothing compared to Jesus' warning. He says it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the deepest ocean. When you put yourself in that position, we are rightly concerned for you. It's a bad place to be. Because Christ will be victorious over those who strive against us, as a good king always is. But, It is God fighting, not us. It is Christ's battle, not ours, although he uses us in the fight. It's another reason this is an astonishing verse, and it has to do with the book of Genesis, chapter 3, 15. The Proto-Evangelion, the first hint of the gospel, wherein the curse that is given to the serpent and to the man and to the woman, God actually gives a little foretaste of things to come. It says on some future day, right, the, the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And Paul takes that and utterly transforms our understanding of it. Jesus will not just bruise the serpent's head, he will crush it. And there can be no question that the Christ who does this, the seed of the woman who does this, Paul equates with the God of peace, insisting absolutely on the divinity of Jesus Christ in this moment. It's also noteworthy, too, this phrase, under your feet. Under your feet. Not only will Satan be crushed, not just bruised, but God in Christ will do this through you. In other words, through the spiritual progress of the church, of which Christ is the cornerstone, the boot is being applied to the head of Satan in order to crush it. And that pretty much guarantees victory. So once your head is crushed, you really can't fight back. 
So our comfort here, the comfort that Paul gives us when he tells us to keep watch over the church, the comfort is that in this life, the victory is Christ's. The victory over sin, over dissension, the things that threaten to tear us apart, the power that that sets all those things aside is Christ's power. And that the, the, the conquest that was first hinted at at the very beginning of Scripture is now coming to reality, to fruition in the person of Christ. And this is his body through which he will win that victory. So we have to put our confidence in his strength and not in ours. Even when we face the greatest challenges we will ever face, which are the threats that come from within. The greatest blessing that Paul can bestow upon us is not that we be wise and cunning. It's not that we have great power or discernment. The greatest blessing that Paul can give us is the one he does give, which is grace he closes our passage, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And when he says those words, he equips us with the only thing that we need. It may seem that we need all sort of strength and power to oppose all sorts of enemies, to fight back against those who strive against us. But it turns out that all we need is exactly what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that grace be with you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.